Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Today, we are excited to share with you the first installment of our discussion with the always engaging duo, Professor Richard Pomp and Jordan Goodman. You won't want to miss this discussion where we get the backstory of how their top 10 list came to be and their thoughts on some recent tax issues, including the North Carolina tax case against Quad Graphics and Public Law 86272. So, gentlemen, how did the Big Easy Brawl start and why do you all continue to publicly banter with each other. Well, I know how it started. I don't think he remembers, but um, <laughs> people viewed him as, uh, who's that guy on Fox News? Carlson Tucker or something? Oh, my God. My family's watching this. My family's going to watch this. No. Can't and say then, that. You know, good-looking guy <laughs> spreading misinformation, large following, making a lot of money. And people came to me and they said, you got to, you know, you got to stop him. You got to just tell people the truth and, and justice and everything else. Once you be like Rachel Maddow. Uh, <laughs> and I said, OK. And that's how I, I met Jordan. I watched a couple of his tapes and I said, this is pretty outrageous. I can't believe this crap. So, um, actually, it's, it's similar to that, but very different. So, <laughs> he got it right that I was asked to to participate with him, but really what, what the people at IPT and ABA down to, who organized the big brawl, they spent some time looking down at the ground. And I was like, what the heck are they doing? They're looking at the ground. They're looking to see who had really big feet because there was amazingly big shoes to fill. And that was of Paul Frankel's because Paul and professor pop used to debate in the big brawl. They've done it at Hartman and NYU all over the country. They've had this wonderful camaraderie, battle, informative, humorous thing. And then Paul stepped away for a little bit, as we all know, Paul Franco, one of the godfather of state local tax. And they're looking for somebody who finally, you know, it's almost like the Harlem Globetrotters and the Washington generals. Paul beat down on Professor Pomp every event, everywhere they were, and they felt bad. So they said, you know, the Washington generals have to win somebody. Who can we get? And they looked at me and they said, well, here's somebody you could beat up on. And that's how it got started. It is true. They said, here's a lightweight for you. So, <laughs> and that's the way it all started. Why do we continue doing this? Why do we debase each other? Debase oh, ourselves. I, I consider it an honor and a privilege to just talk oh. with you. You are one of the smartest, well-versed, constitutional state tax people I've ever met in my life. And I, and, and, I and, and, and I am in it just for the money. That's all. Right, you get the good lunch. <laughs> I would go to some third grade class if they paid me what they pay me to debate uh, this guy over there. So it's, but it, it is, it is honestly, it is always fun to prepare for presenting with Professor Pop. We get to talk about different things, and we're not constrained by uh, necessarily a client's position. We're able to look at stuff around the country and give our opinion on it, and we do agree a lot, but we also disagree on some things. And Professor Pop is very good about that. And where were About we disagreeing? Last? <laughs> where were we last? Was that Nashville or? Yeah, or? we were at, we were in Nashville. Uh, Nashville. And ago. I believe, I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong, that I showed off Jordan's body to the audience at Nashville. Right, his flat stomach, and yeah. opened up his sport jacket. It was a. I, I may have been doing. Then. I don't know. <laughs> For those, <laughs> but it was pretty outrageous. 
So Nashville's also the site of one of the most famous things in state and local tax. It's the Roberto Duran moment. For those who don't remember, he was fighting Sugar Ray Leonard. In the middle of the fight, he said, no mas, no mas, and left the ring, right? Yeah, right. Craziness. About, I don't know, like six years ago, was it, Professor Pop? Right in the middle. We got 15, 20 minutes to go in our presentation. He gets up and leaves the building, left the building. Something about some kind of plane. I think actually I had beaten him down so badly he couldn't take any more and had to leave. No, no, it's prostate issues at this stage. <laughs> I had to leave early. So, yeah, I, I think but, I came back and no one's there anymore. <laughs> I find the bathroom. It was a big, no, it, it really is just, it, it's fun to debate about it. I think uh, we get some good questions. We get some good comments. It's always fun to talk about the latest topics in our chosen state and local tax field. How do you all determine what you are going to talk about? Is it just kind of a, here's kind of what everyone else is talking about. Here's what we find interesting. It's a, that's a combination a great, of the two. You pick battles. You can intentionally win. You can jump in. I'm going to say, so what I do is kind of collect cases over the year. I put something together. I send it to Professor Bob and he goes, no, 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 no. No, and then sends me a bunch of cases he wants to talk about. Now, the little known secret is 90% of all the cases he sends me, he is the key witness in it. He is the expert witness. So really, I just got to follow him around. I don't have to prepare if you approach. Jordan has, shall we say, rather eclectic tastes in cases and uh, sends them to me. I've never heard of most of them. Most of them seem to have no implications for anything other than Jordan likes them. And we go back and forth. Jordan puts together the outline. I always give him credit and uh, make it clear all the mistakes are his, all the typos are his. <laughs> he has a way of spelling de minimis with a U, which irks me no end. De minimis, oh, all the I's. He should know that by now. Little stuff like that. So. <laughs> but it is, a you know, the typical creative process. <laughs> We start off with something raw. We keep working it back and forth. We get cases in there. We organize them. Uh, then we assign who's going to do which one. And then the other one prepares to counterpoint anything the other one says. And then on occasion, we find ourselves in agreement. And it's really interesting, too. Depending upon the audience, we do tailor our thoughts. Right. Uh, for Hartman in particular, there's a lot of governmental people, so you can't be ripping on the government. You got to compliment them a little bit. So our, our our dialogue does change depending upon who's in the audience. Yeah. Um, Jordan believes in what Groucho Marx once said. Those are my principles. And if you don't like them, I have other principles. So uh, depending on the audience, he just trots out a whole different Jordan Goodman. But that's the way it is. I, I am the same no matter who the audience is. I have I have what I believe in and I don't alter it. So unless there's a big donor in the, in the crowd or something, then that's different. But... <laughs> But normally we make, you know, a couple of thousand bucks for every gig. Yeah, I forget what we're making for this podcast, but a couple of thousand ballpark of our normal speaking fee. You know, negotiable, of course. Exactly. And furthering your your prominence. I mean, this is you're talking to the big dogs here, right? Like we're I love this our guy. listenership I love this is it's gonna tri- it's gonna triple after this. <laughs> you have three people then. Jordan's inspiration to uh, all the uh, the people, the young the youngsters in the audience. They look at him and say, "Boy, if he could do it, so can I." Anybody can, absolutely. Yeah. So. He brings out the extrovert and the introverts. That's for sure. <laughs> 
What do you mean? Tax people are known for their personalities. We're vibrant. We're bubbly. We're the most popular <laughs> people at the party. I mean, <laughs> I think that's why we all have successful careers is because we're not the typical look it up in the dictionary kind of people, right? We, yeah. We right. enjoy people. We like going out. We have a good time. And, you know, the, I think the one thing we do all share is this kind of passion for this goofy, arcane area, right? Right. Talk about stalt and people say past it because they want to put it on their meat. That's not something <laughs> people care about. So it's, it's you know, that's something that we all desperately really enjoy. It's fun to read the cases. It's fun yeah. to see what's going on. And I think we like it so much we share that and it comes out when, when we present. Yeah, right. I agree right. with that. Great professional lives. Dating life, not so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I got my partner uh, before before I committed to a career in state and local tax. So he's in. Otherwise, so. Um, With a, you must have a strong prenup then. Yeah. <laughs> he no, that was always He, he doesn't key. listen to this. I don't, I don't make that much money, but he is, he is an educator in the public school no. sector. Well. Okay. So, well, then one of the cases that we kind of wanted to talk about and can it kind of seems as if it's got a lot of kind of implications with what, what happened in Wayfair was the NC Quad Graphics North Carolina DOR case that you all had on your list. Um in your most recent, in one of your yeah. recent top tens, um, I do believe as I was reading it, I did see the pomp name come up. That's why I love that so, case. <laughs> We've already, we, we, it's just proof of the pudding now. We're, we're supporting all sides <laughs> of the argument. We've got, you know, yep. the, uh, I'm going to pick something that I was a witness in. However, it does seem to, you know, kind of impact oh potentially. Maybe some stuff that's happening. Just to set the record straight, it were it was an article of mine that was okay. cited by the court. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, I was not in that case. Yep, yep. Uh, and if you want to get on my good side, just cite me. Whatever Christmas <laughs> newsletters, whatever you want. It's uh, all good, all good. But quad, yes. What do you think, Jordan? I have very strong views. I and suspect so I, you do. I well. do too. I, I think it is a. Um, what's the right Latin for it? Stupidest. <laughs> Let's not all get excited about this. I mean, the important point is it, it kind of clarified what Complete Auto says. It clarified what Dilworth said. It clarified what Wafer said with respect to precedent, transactional nexus. Okay. Uh, Going back to Dilworth, you know, so here's something I look, Dilworth was the Arkansas case. We talked about that. Professor Pop was there. He either bought something from the Tennessee sellers. That was a 1937 Arkansas adopted a sales tax. Then Dilworth came by. And do you know when they adopted a use tax in Arkansas? 1949. You know why they adopted a use tax? Because they lost Dilworth. It took them a while to get there. But yeah. they didn't have a use tax in Arkansas. This is a use tax case, not a sales tax case. Right. It's, it's well, you know, come on. The assessment was for the sales tax. Don't mm-hmm. South Dakota, with their uh, groundbreaking statute, it was failure to collect their sales tax. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, you know, it should have been drafted, uh, as Jordan suggests, failure to collect the use tax. So, Quad, I, I, I will, in the interest of harmony, I will 
agree with Jordan. I don't like labels like transactional nexus. I have a much simpler approach to this. They had a sales tax, North Carolina, and therefore you need a sale if you're going to collect a sales tax. And there was no sale in North Carolina because title passed outside of North Carolina, possession passed outside of North Carolina. Where's your, your hook to levy a sales tax? There's no sale. Now, you could call that lack of transactional nexus. I think that just confuses things. What I find interesting, Jordan, the taxpayer presumably did not file a return, and therefore the statute has not run. Why don't they just cure this by issuing a second assessment for failure to collect use tax? Um, no, I agree with you on that, and that kind of hurts me a little bit, but there are statute limitations if you don't file for use tax. Sometimes it's six years, it gets extended double what the normal statute is limitation, but there are statute limitations on use tax. But what I, what I find more interesting about this, and it might be because there are different types of taxes, but the, the apportionment, this was a sourcing case, as with mm-hmm. Dilworth, it's sourcing about where did the sale occur. All right. That's all well and good. But we've got uh, the Mia and Greenscape cases out of Ohio dealing with the cat, where Ohio has adopted the ultimate destination test. And so I had a case there, not one of those, where the trucks came to New Mexico to pick up the goods and they weren't our trucks or someone else's trucks, ultimately went back to Ohio for temporary storage and they moved on. And we ended up having to pay Ohio cat tax on that. Not on a use tax, obviously, or sales tax on a transact on a cat, a value-added tax, but the ultimate destination test seemed to be accepted by the Ohio Supreme Court as a legitimate tax. And then it's no, you know, talk about lack of transaction, where did the sale occur? It all occurred outside, but they said it ultimately ended up in Ohio. And that was enough. Ultimately ended up. And I have a tough time reconciling those. Yeah, well, maybe you should start by acknowledging Ohio has a gross receipts turnover tax and not a sales tax. So we're dealing with a different type of tax right from the get-go. It doesn't have a use tax because it's a turnover tax, a gross receipts tax. A, turn, a use tax wouldn't make much sense. And, uh, and therefore, forget your sales tax learning the, the sales tax is interesting because you can sell tangible personal property and deliver it to a distributor. They're your purchaser. They store it in a warehouse, and the sale will be viewed as occurring in that state, even though it could be transshipped the afternoon it arrives in the, uh, the day it arrives. It could be transshipped. And we're very formalistic about this destination test in a sales tax. We don't. We never look through it. Well, the grocery receipts tax is is different, and it's almost like a look through ultimate destination. Just stops here momentarily, and then continues on its way the next day. And Ohio would say, well, if it ultimately ends up here, that's uh, uh, a grocery receipt from Ohio. So you, you get, I mean, it is quirky. That the grocery tax is extremely quirky. Right. It's tax from the mid age, middle ages. But to, to the question here, right, uh, in the squad graphics, it can be cured. Uh, you know, it's a great victory, taxpayer victory. 
it re, it, it kind of said that Wayfair really had nothing to do with Dilworth. It didn't talk about sourcing and it doesn't talk about sourcing, although your point about a sales tax in South Dakota is correct. That's the way the statute is written. But really, if they had done it correctly, we wouldn't even having this discussion. If they had assessed a use tax, a use yes. tax selection obligation under Wayfair, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Correct. And we and I don't know why they haven't subsequently done it. That's my question. Right. For it to go all the way through the courts and to a decision seems like kind of a waste of everybody's time. Uh, absolutely right. And now we have a decision that's out there in the universe to review and compare and contrast. Yeah, kudos. I think it was Mike Bowen's case. Kudos to him for arguing what was before him that they issued a sales tax and that's not appropriate. And he lost at the hearings, won in the on appeal in the circuit court. But really, if you're sitting and talking to your taxpayer, you go, "We're we may win this, um, but you know you're going to pay eventually. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to figure it out." Yeah. It was uh, it was just a screw up by the tax department, right? And then, do you do a VDA now on the use tax side and avoid interest and penalties by doing the VDA for these years? They assessed you on sales tax. I just yeah. kind of imagine spending all that money to take it to court and you know pay your attorney fees, you know, depending yeah. on what's in question. So, costs a lot of money to yeah. ramp up for a lawsuit. Good fifty thousand dollars, I would say. So you got to have enough in question to take that through and then continue on, right? And yeah. the years of waiting. Yeah, so. I mean, sure, yeah. but on a contingency basis for you. But that may put as you're a buddy of his. I don't know. <laughs> Are you doing much of these on contingencies today? Uh, I would say uh, very, very none. Yeah, <laughs> very none. <laughs> You know, it makes sense to the uh, taxpayer, but they like, I don't know, they, they shy away from it. Why is that? The Why contingent you, fees or the Contingent fees. fees at, no, a contingent basis. Why do they shy away from that? I, no, no, no. I, I, we've done some, you know, hybrid alternative, you know, yeah. rate stuff like that. We do all that. Our firm is structured. We're meat and potatoes. We do it on hours. That's how we survive. We do well with yeah. that system my bucket but no i i mean i've certainly done cases where there's some kind of alternative uh fee arrangement because cases are good you know and then we take a risk and and clients like it because they're if they feel like you're buying in you're going to give it your best effort because that's how you get paid and it's worked out yeah Yeah. i I find taxpayers shy away from it more than they should it's perfectly it's a rational way to to share risk Gordon, yeah, yeah but they don't want you to get a windfall as an attorney of like 30% of the of the, the winnings. Uh-huh. So that probably is part of it too, because it's a giant fee compared to the effort, it, right? It, it, yes, it can be, but that's what risk sharing sometimes. Yeah. Is. Yeah, but if we save $10 million, aren't we entitled to half a million dollars of that? I mean, right? Isn't that something? Aren't we I mean, I'm just saying, it? sometimes yeah, no, I wonder. I, I, I get. I, I think it's just hard. It's really hard from a budgeting perspective, unless mm-hmm. it's pure contingency, right? Yep. They, right. They find that uh, corporate America really likes to have things known and budgeted, and it yes. could be more to budget and know it than it would be if you paid on a contingency fee. But that's kind of the way that they like it. Uh, yeah, uh, I think you're right. So yeah. you do project fees now, right? It's becoming increasingly common. Taxpayers who ask for a project fee. 
Yeah, and perfect, perfect budgeting. So like a kind of a fixed fee is what you mean kind by of, that. Yeah, like this fee. is the scope. Yep, you do that yeah, a lot. And, and litigation is probably the the biggest wild card there. Because yes. I know for corporate deals and trusts, estates, things like that, you know, return preparation, fixed fees are all good. But I think litigation is a wild card. And I think, any, you know, from our perspective, we're, we'll talk about it when we retain it, but we're going to protect ourselves a little bit because, the you know, discovery can go crazy. And that's what yes. usually goes on. Uh, interlocutory appeals go crazy, all those kind of things. That's a lot of time before you right. even get a decision. If it's yeah. a motion for summary judgment and we don't need even Professor Pomp as an expert witness, a lot easier to deal with. Yeah, cool. big, mistake, big mistake, but okay. Not not having an expert, whether it's me or anyone else, big mistake. No, no. No, Professor Pomp's great because he's one of those wind-up toys because you, you ask him a question and then you could just go on pause for like an hour while he explains <laughs> it to the judge. He gets his pizza explanation out, talks about apportionment and pizza the pie. It's beautiful. It's a, if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. We've got videotape. And you can just zone out <laughs> think about, you know, what you're going to have for lunch at that point. It's all good. <laughs> well, you know, the judges don't understand this stuff. I mean, there's not a lot of judges Actually, out there that really I, understand tax. Part of Professor Pump's genius is his ability to break it down to everybody, right? Yep. To the, the reasonable person, common man, common woman, common person. That's yep. what his, that's what his, his genius is, is being able to take our complex, most complex stuff and say, here's how it is and use general things found in the kitchen to explain it to a judge so they can understand it. Judge, may I approach the chart? <laughs> and may I pull out my kitchen knife? <laughs> Next piece uh, is you need to be doing that with all the state legislators, the same people who have no idea what they're doing either. Meredith is so right. I once testified in Vermont. They, uh, they weren't combined reporting at this time. And I was there to help maybe uh, bring it over the line. And I got done, I, uh, got done talking about Delaware holding companies and transferring the IP. This is in the, you know, the Jeffrey era. Right. And the, it's a part-time legislature, at least then. And the, there are a bunch of farmers. And this farmer said to me, he said, I'm not sure I followed that, Professor but let me see if I have it right. So they sit in New York and they create uh, some fictional something or other in Delaware, and we get screwed here in Vermont. Is that the gist? <laughs> yes. I go, yeah, I, I, I think you got. I think you followed. That's pretty- exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. I'm voting for this here combined. What was Professor <laughs> combined reporting? Combined reporting. <laughs> We're gonna stop. Not- that screw job. Not combine <laughs> reporting. Farmer yeah. Oh, combine. That's funny. <laughs> that is Zing. very funny. Very good. Because they're all dairy farmers. Right. Reporting. I'm going to use that next <laughs> I'm in that as agriculture. I like that. Right. And think about how much will you say, okay, well, what's legislative intent? Ah, oh, no. Someone told him to vote this way. That's what the legislative intent was. I think it's to stop. We're getting screwed somehow. We're not sure. It was to stop that. Stop getting screwed. That's our intent. Yes, good. More money in our coffers. Well, then kind of using that as a transition for potentially more money, potentially getting screwed, and or waiting on the legislation to potentially do something. The revision. The MTC, right, has a revised statement. 
then associated with public law 86272 and kind of clarifying maybe some interpretations related to the internet stuff. Then that activity um, I'm going to go out on a limb and maybe say that you all might have some opinions on it. And therefore, on what the was done would not <laughs> related to did you hear, under the Did you hear Jordan moan? I thought I moaned. <laughs> that was a growl. Oh, uh, yeah. Growl and moan. by a, a smirk. <laughs> should go first on this. Okay, so here, here's my thought about that. I don't know why 86272 exists anymore, but it does. It's on the books and should be respected. I think what the MTC is adjusting is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But I'll hold back. I'll I'll be reserved about it. It is absolutely the dumbest policy I've ever seen because it basically doesn't exist anymore, right? They're going to cut the heart out of 86272. Correct. And it doesn't exist anymore. That's not their function. That's not their role. Get the get the law repealed. Because what happens here is just a pure trap for the unwary. And, and what we right. talked about when Professor Pop and I talked about this last was how does this get resolved? Some states can adopt the MCC policy, go after somebody claiming 86272, say you've got cookies in the state, they're taking yep. this, they're doing that. They're it's non-static activity. They're yep. not static, they're not session cookies, they're persistent cookies, they're getting all this kind of information, and they're going to sue somebody, and that person's going to fight them, and they're going to fight them up to the highest court because now it's a federal, federal law that's being interpreted, state court, U.S. Supreme Court. They're going to win or they're going to lose. Let's say the MTC wins. Let's say that the world has changed. Six years later, we find out that this position that someone took is good. So what happens? They go back retroactively against everybody else. Right. That's stupid policy. If the law doesn't make sense anymore, you either got to expand it to include everybody or get rid of it from a policy perspective. It's an old law that's supposed to be temporary. Six months. That's all people thought it would be. It would be six months, a year, two years. That was in 1959. Okay, We still have it. We still have it. This is ridiculous. Either it's a good law and we have to observe it and expand it or we get rid of it. But to do it by death by a thousand cuts is ridiculous. But that's my feeling. <laughs> I, I, I need some oxygen in this room. I think <laughs> you know what I, I can imagine happening. The same thing we saw in the sales tax area where we have professors of electrical engineering and physics debating whether electricity is tangible or intangible, something they had never thought about in their life, nothing they've ever taught. No textbook on quantum physics has an entry under the intangible, tangible discussion. And here they are talking about the nature of electricity. And we are going to see the same thing when it comes to Well, where's the cookie actually inserted? And what is a cookie? And uh, is that a business activity that occurs in the customer's state? If the cookie is inserted at the vendor's location, all of that, I think it's just going to be hopeless. And the MTC, the, the premise of all of their examples is that when you're dealing with a website, that's business activity in the state. And that's what 86272 starts off saying, if you're only business activity. So they say, okay, well, this is business activity, but in all of the juicy cases, it's not the only activity. 
because you now have cookies in the state that are gathering important information that you're going to use. And uh, I, I agree with Jordan. This will just go on and on and on in litigation. I hope no state will adopt it retroactively, but you, you never know, do you? But, well, and I'm just curious with the MTC doing this. I mean, is it because they just don't have the power to reverse PL 6272 because it's a federal? So it's their way to override it um, administratively and push for adoption, but right? It's like, but they have no authority. Like, you've got to right. do someone has to do something with their kind of like thoughts, right? Correct. They have to adopt it. The SEC is not legislature. Yeah, they're right. not. MTC can't uh, uh, issue an assessment, right? Not on on their own. They right. have to get permission by a state. They could do audits on behalf of a state. Mm-hmm. States that can enforce it. So the MTC can't. So they put it out to their member states. Someone's going to adopt it. Someone's going to do it. Have you guys heard tell of it. anybody who might be adopting it? Do you guys not, have any wind of that? Not yet. No, okay. not yet. But you kind of think, like, realistically, wouldn't you, from a state's perspective? be stupid not to kind of like Wayfair, like, wouldn't you be stupid not to impose these other than potentially if there's a legislative or like a legal challenge to it and they don't want to go through that. But remember what happened to Wayfair, South Dakota adopted it. A couple other States adopted it. And then once they won, you know, it was right. But pre Wayfair, there were 15 States that had adopted Wayfair. I mean, 15 of the 46, well, 45 plus DC that had a sales tax law. So I'm like, that's kind of a lot if you think about it, and including yeah. New York. No, but I but mean, big states. Let's go back to the late '80s too, before Quill was decided. How many states adopted regular and systematic solicitation as economic nexus standard? Right, right. Thirty, thirty something states adopted it, and they got shot down in Quill. Right. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Okay. You know, yeah, strength in numbers in in many areas, but doesn't guarantee it. I just feel like with the sales tax licensure, you know, really growing exponentially across the nation with lots of million dollar a year companies, they're exceeding thresholds in one way or the other in one place or another, you're in the system now, right? And now you're Mm -hmm. just, it just builds on itself. So I see this as just unwrapping itself to more compliance and no company is going to know how to manage their PLD 6272 or not. They don't even know what that means as a small seller. Judy, your, your point is really well made because the reality of is the reality of this is everybody who buys online now mm-hmm. or has selling from remotely wants it next day, same day, yesterday, Absolutely. right? So what does that mean? That means you have inventory everywhere. That's the whole Amazon piece of it about yep. they have your inventory all over the country. Now you've gone beyond 86, 272. So already. we're getting there already without yep. the cookie stuff, with actually physical presence, having inventory. There's some lawsuits that have been thrown out saying it's not our inventory. It's actually Amazon's inventory, whatever. But we are getting there, but not through some ludicrous, bad proposal trying to change the metaphysical way of how we determine physical presence in a state and activities in a state. But don't you think we should just drop having a remote employee? I mean, one remote employee is Nexus. I mean, that I just think that is just uh, silly to me. Like, and especially now post COVID or what if it's the COVID. CEO though? What if it's the CEO? Right. What if the does that mean that they're because they're getting paid more, they're making more decisions, they're more important that the company is doing business there? No, of course not. You, I mean, you're yeah. working remotely. We're talking. You're in Illinois. I don't know where you are. Your secret right. place, Richard Professor Paul. Yes. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, I gotta, you know, philosophically, I, I don't, I don't know if I can agree with you with that because 
at some point, why aren't we all subject to tax everywhere? Everywhere. Right. right. Well, that's and, where and I think we're going. Establish some de minimis level of overall sales or sales into the state. Of course, sales right. into the state is, is a function of sourcing and sourcing on the sales tax side on services may be different than selling on yep. the income tax side. But ultimately, that's where we're going. They want everybody to be taxable everywhere. Everywhere. Sales, yes. Right. Yes. And. You know, I, I will defend against that to the nth degree because that's not what our laws say now. But yep. ultimately, maybe that's where we got to go. And and sure, we I mean, chat room, the MTC having a chat room, having an application. I mean, give me a break. No, one of things on the internet. One of it was like, one, you can't go to a website without saying like, hey, we're tracking our your cookies. Like, we have access yeah. to data. We're going to collect data, right? I know you but, can't even look at it without getting also, rid of the big box. You got to accept of them, it. One of them isn't even a chat box. It's like if you send an email to customer service and it's like, okay, that's dumb. Like, right. and if it's like, okay, well, if I have the ability to do this, someone, like, how am I really going to monitor that? And it's just like, okay, well, general policy is like, yeah, I might not know that someone directly is answering a chat function that's non-static in Nebraska, but I have to presume that they are because I have the ability to do that. So it's kind of like, I'm, yeah. I can't Static prove FAQs, it. I'm gonna... Right. Static FAQs are fine, right? If you could read a question, they give you an answer. It's on the website. No big deal. But if they respond to you, if you're able to ask a question, that goes beyond it. But if I picked up the phone and called them and someone answered, that's legit. I don't right. get it. That's right? ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Everybody's doing chat boxes. I just did it last weekend. I got an extra discount off my anthropology order because everything <laughs> I bought went on sale even more. And I got a 25% discount, 14 days from purchase. So I chatted with them and they did it. I didn't call anybody. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented. Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. We're back this week with the second installment of our engaging discussion with Professor Richard Pomp and Jordan Goodman, where we've been discussing the duo's top 10 lists and their thoughts on prominent tax cases and other state and local tax topics. Are there any other recent tax decisions that you think are just really bad policy? I'm trying to think. The last cases we went over, which I happen to have a little subset here. What, what was the most outrageous state decision that we talked about, Jordan? Uh, do we talk? I don't know that we talked. This oh. was really stupid. Well, we you yell, I talk. So uh, this was really stupid. I was going to talk about the thing that from a policy perspective that's really making me crazy yeah. is this debate about whether the proceeds from the sale of a capital event should be included in the factor. It's included oh. in business income, right? It's included in business income, but mm-hmm. we don't want to include the receipts. And I think that is just stupid. I just think it's wrong. And this is actually a debate that's going on now around the country about when to include it or not. And I think California probably has the best approach to it, although I'm in California and I'm hitting them on the head with their own laws and they, they don't even know which way is up. Really, they, they say everything, every gross receipt should be included. If it moves the factor 5%, you got to show that it's not distortive. I go, okay, 
that's a legitimate thing. The Utah one we talked about, you have to show where it's a lot of it's goodwill, right? Gain on, on capital events, goodwill. You got to show where it was sourced to or show me some event to it and I, before you include it. Well, I don't think that's the right test. California, for me, it's like, what? how is it not distortive? How much income did it generate compared to your normal income? Right. What, right. That's the question. That should be the subjective, uh, you know, numerical test. And they, I've got a client that's got 95% of its income in the year is generated by the capital event. They go, oh, we're throwing yep. out the factors. But it's business income. I, I'm, I'm baffled. I go, how could it not be included in the factor? Yeah. This is a kind of the old Microsoft case and General Mills, Treasury function and hedging. And they're hard cases because the gross receipts can be so enormous yep. of being generated by a very small profit margin. Now, on the gain of the sale, you have this enormous capital gain that accrued over time. And you're apportioning it by, it's almost serendipitous what the apportionment formula looks like in the year of the sale when that it took 25 years to uh, that gain to be generated. I and disagree. The question is, I disagree. it doesn't take 25 years for the gain to be generated. The capital gain. The, 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 the gain business. is at a particular point when you sell uh, yeah, but that's that's not when the gain was really. Because we're talking about like the accumulation of value just didn't happen overnight. And then you take current so, apportionment factors and you're and like, you take that's current how we split it. And you, I mean, I would say theoretically the right answer is you should average the apportionment formulas over time. Let's say it's goodwill. No, goodwill doesn't happen instantaneously in the year of the, the sale. It has been generated over time. And where do you source it? If you are going to put it in the apportionment formula, whose numerator yeah. get the capital gain? That's the rub. I, I could I could live with that if that was what the statutes say, but the statutes don't say that. They either say all sales from big transactions get removed per se without an explanation that it generated most of the liability, or I'll give you a piece of it, or I apportion it someplace else. It doesn't say that. And that's why I think from a policy perspective, the way the states are approaching it is just dead wrong. They're just saying no. That's wrong. Oh, yeah. They don't know what to do. They don't know really. Uh, that's why I said theoretically. Yeah. Uh, they don't know what to do as a practical matter. Now, we actually, Georgia may not remember, we were on the same side of Mead. It was handled by Jordan's firm. And when it was remanded, we got ready for a second round before Jordan was able to, to settle this case on remand. And we had to confront what if the gain were going to be taxable, in, uh, if Lexus was going to be taxable by the states in which Lexus did business. Forget me, just Lexus, carve it out as a freestanding entity. What states should have a piece of that capital gain, which a couple billion dollar capital gain, uh, and we had some theoretical discussion in a white paper I did. And then, of course, the case was settled and that was the end of it. But uh, the VAS case out of Massachusetts may raise exactly this issue, Jordan. Yeah. You know, what do you do that sale of a partnership interest, enormous capital gain, and then who gets a piece of that? And, and that's the area we're seeing right now are these sales of pass-through entities, 
Where does it go? And the states are scattered. You've got California saying if it's business income, you look to the factors of the entity being sold, not the asset being sold, which Mm -hmm. is to me theoretically inconsistent, but I understand what they're getting at, kind of what you said. Then you know where you've you've been, therefore historically where the appreciation occurred. I think it's misplaced, but I understand that at least. But the states are all across the board as to whether it should be where it should be at the asset that's being sold or going through to the entity that's being sold and where what historical and that's what Vectrum's all about. Right. That Vectrum case is all about the the anomaly of going into Michigan, uh, where you normally have a three percent factor, having a 70 percent factor in a year of sale and how distortive it is. And the court got it. The court's gotten it twice now. Right. So that to me is kind of the upper limit. That that illustrates my point about how gain can accrue over time. And it's serendipitous. The where you are, the year it is finally uh, recognized. And you may have an apportionment formula having nothing to do realistically with, with the game. Well, we have equitable apportionment. It's a uh, safety valve if you can get a court to understand what you're you're saying. The, the stupidest case, I think, is the one out of Indiana. Did we talk about that together, Jordan, the Express Scripts case? Yeah. Yes. Basically, a, a management company doing what Anthem used to do before they outsourced it to Express Scripts, uh, just managed the drug reimbursement program. And they didn't sell drugs. CVS sold drugs. Walmart, Wal- uh, what's it's Wal- Walgreens. Walgreens sold drugs. <laughs> right. I buy my drugs from dealers, so I never... <laughs> exactly. They don't really have names. They got Zeke and, and Guido. Guido yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. drugs. <laughs> and they come to me. I have to stand in line at the brick and mortar. So, and, and Indiana, the tax department says, you're selling tangible personal property. And they go, say What? Uh, we're a service provider and we're in a state that at that time was cost of performance. And in Indiana, you don't get any of the gross receipt. And the department said, oh, no, no, you have an entry. This has fascinated me, by the way. There's an entry on their federal tax return where they have put their normal deductions, but they call it cost of goods sold. Have you ever run into this, Jordan? Yes, yes. You have. What no, is going I, I, on? Where, where I, I, I've seen it where they use cost of goods sold because it doesn't matter for federal purposes. It's just a deduction. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. state will jump on it. And the opposite in Texas, unless yeah. you call it cost of goods sold, you don't get it as cost of goods sold, even right. if it is cost of goods sold. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, that Because it doesn't fit in all the other categories. Right. So you're like, well, I'm going to throw it here. And it is valid uh, deductible. Yeah. Yep. A deduction is a deduction. Uh, the, yeah. And the... But your law firm doesn't have a cost you could sold. You you deduct your associate salaries and everything else uh, on a line on the return. You don't need to to create cost of goods sold. So I never understood it. But the department jumped on it. Gordon Jordan's absolutely right. Jumped on it and said, "Well, look, obviously it's selling product, and that brings them outside of cost of performance." performance. Yeah, into the destination rule. Luckily, Indiana is one of the great tax court judges in the country, Judge Wentworth. Right? Yes, Judge yeah. Wentworth. Yes. She's wonderful. Wonderful. Calls it as she sees it. The department yeah. hates her. They, uh, <laughs> in, in, in fact, I, I noticed that we seem to be settling 
more cases because they don't want to go before her. So it's okay. getting easier to settle in Indiana. But uh, yeah, she's wonderful. And she saw right through them in this case. When you read the opinion, it kind of drips with scorn. Not a very good department. That's one of the worst cases I think I have read recently. But it, the cases, I, I don't understand why they're brought. The, yeah? the two that come to mind, Chevron and uh, was it Sitco? They, they brought a case that was essentially relitigating General Mills. General Mills had it was about hedging and it was their inventory control program uh, in buying, you know, to protect the price of corn and whatever they put in their cereals. Uh, and it, it went to trial and the court said, yes, it's a gross receipt, but it so distorts it that you um, will give you the gross receipt, but you can't put that gross receipt in the denominator. It's a gross receipt, but under equitable apportionment, only the net gain on your hedging will be put in the denominator, which is the approach many states take with the treasury function. You right. buy commercial paper on day one for a million. On day two, you get a million and one back. And you'd like to say your gross receipt is a million and one. And you do this day after day after day. And pretty soon you got an enormous gross receipt. And then the states don't allow this anymore. Anyway, Chevron hedging against the price of its uh, inputs and Citgo, I think. I think it was a Citgo. They litigated this. And of course, they got their butts handed to them. It was a ridiculous case to go up on. And I thought we had seen the last of those cases, but I guess not. Yeah, particularly and, California, they've kind of got it regulatorily nailed down of what they have to do, what the test is. I'm not sure. You know, yeah, that's yeah. Not and, 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 and yeah, in California, because of General Mills yeah. uh, was one of them, and Microsoft was another in California. Um, yeah. So American Honda, one that Jordan and I talked about. That's, again, not my where, client, not my case, not my understanding. Don't know. Don't get it. I, Why don't you explain the facts first? Okay. Well, they make a little bit of money selling vehicles. They make a lot of money on uh, earning tax credits. And they sell the tax credits. It was, it was hundreds of millions of dollars of tax credits, like $250 million oh, of tax credits year after year. Yeah. And it was more profitable than their operations. And they claimed it was non-business income. They sourced to their commercial domicile. And California happened to be their commercial domicile. What do you think the odds were they actually had a number on their California return? But right. the case doesn't but, say. But that went up to the Arkansas Supreme Court. It was a case of first impression. They really have not looked at, you did the definition of business income in, in Arkansas before. And I don't disagree with the decision you know, I'm an optimist. I looked at the decision of the Arkansas Supreme Court, and they really said something that's really important for all of anybody who's listening in the salt world. They gave no deference to the regulations issued by the Department of Revenue in Arkansas on what business and non-business income is. They said, we can read the statute. We don't need your help. Thank you very much. Which to me was the most important thing of Americana because the issue itself as to whether these tax credits they sold year after year were business income was kind of a silly question. They had a division in the company in charge of selling these credits. Uh, you couldn't ask for a more straightforward business income 
case. Never understood why they thought they had a shot at this. But this issue of deference is a, uh, a big issue, as you folks know. I don't know why you would want to put blinders on and not even look at what the department did. They may have some insight that you don't have as a lay judge. I would give it whatever deference it deserves and uh, look at it. You don't like it. You think they're wrong. Fine. So <laughs> how can you be ignorant? Why do you want to be ignorant? and remain in the dark about what your tax agency, the most knowledgeable people in the state, presumably, think about this problem. I don't, I, you know, de novo is fine. De novo with whatever respect you think it deserves may be even better. So, but. Well, I think that's, yeah, judges, the good judges always say, I'll take that under advisement, right? And then they, yes. they either listen to it or they don't listen to it, they do it themselves, but they kind of do it in the privacy of their own office by saying, we'll take it under advisement. Yeah, right. right. But I, I love it. And that's one that should be quoted all over the place is because department's opinion, pff, worth nothing. I like it. Judges can read statutes too. Yeah, you, you like it until the regulation helps your client. Well, but then, then of course then you like it. Yeah. <laughs> then 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 it ought to be listened to. So two weeks from now, Sirius Radio is being yes. in Texas. And that's two weeks. It. Okay. They two just weeks. Took- right after week after Thanksgiving. Okay. Our wow. buddy Jeff Friedman is arguing that uh in Texas. And that's a big one. Yes. It's just interesting. The lawyer arguing for the state when he was in private practice actually argued the position that Sirius Radio is taking. And then they're saying, look, based on your case law, as much as the statute, it's where the content was produced. We don't produce much content in Texas Mm -hmm. in terms of. Right. Uh, there is right. a there's something called Willie's Roadshow, uh, not Willie Nelson, and a couple of hours a week. But but that's it. You know, it's all right. out in New York. And the state is saying, no, no, we're market based state, even though they're not. And where's the market? Well, your your business is really decrypting signals at the uh, uh in the car that's what you do for a living you decrypt signals and that takes place now you see now here's a question that takes place where you have interstate truckers they're big serious radio subscribers but you don't know where they are so you got to use billing address mm-hmm. Gordon, you run into this in chicago all the time don't you uh with the aggressive so. Transaction tax, right? Billing address, but at least the city of Chicago allows you to prove by affidavit that it's being used outside the city, right? So they they have an apportionment method. So it's I got to give them kudos when I when I have to. But this whole issue about being a cost of performance state, well, it's which cost of performance are they looking at, mm-hmm. and they become so specific as to putting the credit card in the slot to where the antenna is located. Mm-hmm. Those aren't really cost of performance. Those are pieces of what of the possible way that you get the service and pay for it this is not really it's not direct costs that i grew up learning in cost accounting those aren't the direct costs 
we don't know where the antenna is located. That's mm-hmm. a function of how to deliver it. That's not maybe a piece of it, but certainly not all of it. No. Even on a transaction by transaction basis. Well, I'm pretty sure radio, which is free, but do we source advertising to that, the revenue for that, based on where it's listened to? And that is a moneymaker, radio. So I don't know. That it just seems very and contrary they, to me. The states like to use population. Yeah, Nielsen ratings, ratings, those kind of things, a little bit more specific than population for any kind of advertising and broadcasting. Yeah, the thing is, Nielsen ratings, they're such a dinosaur because of the mobility we have to watch things on the move. Right, Uh, the IP address of your phone is the same no matter where it is, right? Right, right. Who hasn't watched the show not at home? Right. Right. So it's really an inexact science. And what yeah. it comes down to, you just start making stuff up. And you can right? use a different word for the S. But I'll use stuff. It's a family program. But it's just making <laughs> stuff up and whether it's fair or not. And as the Supreme Court said, it's not an exact science. It's an art. And we'll give you or some Or as, as people who have drafted for a living say, the perfect's the enemy of the good. <laughs> we, we can't get the statue perfect. Let's just get it good so we can go home. It's three in the morning. Take a shower. We got to be back at eight for the leadership meeting. So, uh, yeah. You, and this is will be the, the, the challenge I see in many of these situations, Jordan. How close do you have to get to the right answer? Before? Right. And, and, well, and then the but, information you can get from companies about how they're how they make their money. That's mm-hmm. a very complicated story to unravel from an accounting and record standpoint. I mean, we have a client that redeems coupons and Washington took the position that the redeemers were the moneymaker when the coupons weren't paid for by the redeemers at all. They got a little discount to buy the good. The manufacturers right. paid for the coupons. That's so that right. money came out of state. So how does Washington get to glom onto that? But the yeah, money wasn't yeah. big enough to fight. So there is this thing where people are going to get taken advantage of if it's not material where the states are going to make a grab for the money and there's going to be multiple states getting the same money. And I think that's really problematic. You, you have hit on a big case in New York that just came down, B&H uh, photo. If you've ever been to New York, uh, where are they, 47th Street or something? They're one of these big, big uh, well-known mail order companies and cheap stuff, cheap prices and whatnot. And you go to their website, which I encourage you to do, and, and you'll see price of this camera, $1,000 with a big X through it. Today's price only $900. And that's what they collected sales tax on. It was a whistleblower case, which Jordan has great experience with in Illinois, home of one of the big whistleblower law firms. And the whistleblower said they should be collecting on $1,000 and state you're losing tons of money. And the AG actually says, "Okay, we're going to take this case. Talk about a stupid case, right? Yeah. A $1,000 price, which no one ever pays because it's always on sale. The wrinkle is exactly what you said, Judy. The manufacturer gives a subsidy mm-hmm. uh, to B&H Auto, Auto, B&H Photo on a certain amount of volume that they sell. Mm-hmm. These cameras, they're not required to lower the price of the camera. They're not required to put on sale. But you move a lot of our stuff and you're going to get a a discount, like a volume discount. And because of that, 
the whistleblower thought somehow there was the manufacturer's coupon in there. I, I testified in this case and basically said the sales tax is, is supposed to be imposed on consumption. What's the consumption here? What do you pay for? That's your consumption. Right. Not what it sold for yesterday, what it might have sold sell for tomorrow. Right. What one might pay for if they didn't have a coupon. What did you pay for? That's your consumption. And uh, we, we just won this case. And big, big uh, win. Embarrassment to the attorney general because uh, Jordan knows better than most, uh, being from the home of whistleblowers and ketones and all that. The attorney general has to decide whether he is going to get involved. She, in, in case of New York, whether she's going to get involved or not. He did on this one. Jordan, why would you get involved in this cockamamie case? A no-brainer from the start, I thought. You know, when I first got called, you're kidding. You're not kidding? They actually think sales tax should be on $1,000, a price no one probably ever pays. But I can't believe that they really understood the facts, honestly, because it's it's a Jerry Maguire moment. Show me the money. What did I get yeah. paid? That's really what yeah. the, the consideration is. And they kind of blew that. And they were thinking of a manufacturer's coupon where they get reimbursed. or so. I, I don't seem to me like they didn't really understand the facts when they got involved in it, because clearly on the facts that, that could, were, were true, there's there was no reason to litigate the case. Yes. That, then that could be that someone had stars in their eyes. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But silly, right? Yeah, it was silly. But yeah. But you got paid. It was all good. Yeah, I got paid. So not a contingency. You know, an expert witness cannot cannot work yeah. on a contingency. You um, yeah. And then I got cited, which was nice. So yeah, I'm, I was happy. Client was happy. Everyone's invited. I don't think it's going to be appealed. So. I hope not. Be yeah. Manufacturers have a lot of ways to get money to the vendor, not just with a coupon. And I don't think it matters which way they do it. I would say even with the manufacturer's coupon, what did you pay? Not right. what's the vendor get reimbursed Right, for. right, what right. Did you pay? So it's not yes, it's not like they're paying you. That would be income. Um, you anything so i don't care what piece of paper you give the store what did you pay for it out of your cash that's the only thing that matters well gentlemen we really appreciate this conversation and for us today that's what matters and so you know maybe we'll just have to have you back and you know maybe in a couple of weeks we'll talk about serious but we really do appreciate your time Jordan Professor Palm, thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Saltivation. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.